As I announced to you a few minutes ago, right now we're beginning our very first live streaming broadcast on WSTL of a service here from Faith Christian Center. So I think it'd be appropriate if we as a church here welcome them. Yeah. Are you ready? So the count of three, we're going to say Happy Resurrection Day. One, two, three. Welcome everyone that's listening this morning by way of radio. Let's pray and prepare to get into God's Word. Father, we come to you in the precious name of Jesus. We've come here to celebrate an event that took place over 2,000 years ago. But Lord, may this be an event that becomes real and a very precious part of our lives today. For Lord, what happened 2,000 years ago is echoes, not just backwards, but echoes forward in time until that great and wonderful day when Jesus appears in the clouds and calls us up to be with him, and our bodies are changed from mortal into immortal. Our bodies are changed from sick to well, and we enter into the fullness of the, of the, of the, fullness of the salvation that you paid for. Father, the heart cry of the Apostle Paul was that he would come to greater, have a greater understanding of the, and the greater reality of the power of the resurrection. And Father, that's our prayer this morning, that we have a greater understanding when we leave today of the power of your resurrection in our lives and for the church today. And to do that, we trust in the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon his word and upon the word as it's spoken. For you have ordained, Father, that your church should grow and mature through the preaching of the word. And so we rest in and rely upon the precious Holy Spirit to do that now. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. This is a day when the world celebrates what they call Easter. It was in several restaurants this week, or there's a coffee shop or something like that, and there were the waitress that waited on us had bunny ears on, you know, and it was cute. But that's the world's idea of what Easter is all about. It's an event that took place over 2,000 years ago. And the question today is, is it just a holiday that celebrates the beginning of spring? Because that's what it is to many people. And, and we certainly know that we need to celebrate spring as much as we can <laughs> to encourage it on. It was chilly this morning when I got up. What is it? Is it an historical event that the church looks back on and says, well, it's this date in our calendar that corresponds with the Jewish Passover? What is it? What does it mean? What does it mean to the world? What does it mean to the church? What does it mean to you? And that's what we're going to take a look at this morning. But let's start, first of all, on Good Friday. We're going to read a little bit about what Good Friday was about. Is this just a date for family gatherers? Is this just a date for food, for candy, for kids? Or does it mean something more? We're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 33. And this is referring, of course, to Friday morning, Friday afternoon. And when they come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say the place of the skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. And when he tasted of it, he would not drink. And then they crucified him. Divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the prophets. They divided my garments among them, for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And they put up over his head an accusation written against him, saying, This is the king of the Jews. 
Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads, saying, you who, you, 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 you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. I remember as a boy sitting in Friday, Good Friday services with my grandmother. And I was raised in church, but my parents, my grandparents weren't born again as far as I could tell. They certainly didn't talk to me about it. I remember sitting here as we went through the, 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 the words that Christ spoke from the cross and thinking, well, why didn't he prove who he was and come down off the cross? Because I didn't understand what the cross was all about, and neither, neither did they. Prove you're the Son of God and come down from the cross. Verse 41, Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the King of Israel, let him come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let, him deliver, God, let God deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him. And now from the sixth until the ninth hour, there was darkness over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama samanakhtini, tani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who stood there when they heard said, This man's calling out for Elijah. And immediately some of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and he offered it to him to drink. And they said, Rest said, Let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again, and with a loud voice, he yielded up his spirit. Notice it wasn't taken from him. He yielded it up. And then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, that was dead, were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those with him were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, This was the Son of God, and many women who followed from Galilee ministering to Him were looking on from afar, and among them were Mary Magdalene, the mother and the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. And now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had become a disciple. And he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate commanded the body be given to him, and Joseph had taken the body. He wrapped it in clean linen clothes, laid it in a new tomb which he has hewn out of a rock, rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. And on the next day, following the, pre- the, preparation, the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate. And they were saying, Sir, we remember that while he was still alive, how he de- the deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come by night and steal him away and tell the people that he's risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, You have guards. Go your way and make it secure as you know how. And so they went and made the tomb secure, sealing it with the stone and setting the guard. That was up to Friday evening. Now let's take a look at what this event meant. Because we have observing his death on the cross. We have Pilate. He wasn't there. We have the Pharisees and the opposition that hated him and were really behind his crucifixion. We have bystanders, the Roman soldiers, and the other people that were curious. And the last of all, we have his disciples, his followers. 
Let's talk for a minute about what this scene we've just read meant to them. Well, to Pilate, it meant a very difficult and awkward situation was hopefully over. Because he was presented with the choice between letting Jesus go or crucifying him, and his, something bothered him, something troubled him, and then his wife comes to him and says, I don't have anything to do with this because I have dreams about him, and this is serious stuff, don't have anything to do with it, which is why Pilate said, I've got to wash my hands of this. But Pilate, <coughs> who had, been, uh, had persecuted the Jews, Pilate, who had desecrated the temple, Pilate, who had offended them by bringing in insignias with the face of Caesar on it, offending the Jews, at this point became very weak because his very job was threatened if there was another problem. And so when the Jews stood up and said, no, 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 don't let him go, crucify him, Pilate, who was a very strong leader, caved into them. And he's hoping at this point when his body is taken down and he gets the report of this, that this problem that he washed his hands of is over. Then we got the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the men that hated him that were threatened so much because Jesus' truth, and we saw Wednesday night here in the video that we watched that Lafayette showed for us here, we saw Wednesday night Jesus' confrontation with at least one of them with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and he did not mince words with them. He hated hypocrisy because hypocrisy keeps people from knowing the nature, the true nature of God. And so he was angry at them and they became threatened by him and they had to find a plan to get rid of him and to kill him. And so they convinced Judas, one of his disciples, to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. And Judas does that. So as this scene ends on Friday night and he is taken down off the cross dead and his side has been pierced and his hands have been pierced and his feet pierced and he's put away in this grave. The, 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 the Pharisees are hoping, they're hoping that this, this problem is over with. So they have a con- cautious hope, but yet you can tell by what they did that they're still not completely sure because he said some things that he was going to come up out of that grave and they didn't just say, well, you know, nobody's ever done that before. They were concerned that somehow this might be faked. So they arranged to have soldiers guard the tomb. Then you have the bystanders that are just there out of curiosity. You have the soldiers who have to be there. It's their job. They've, they've not only witnessed, they performed many, many crucifixions. They're used to seeing men die in this horrible manner of death. And I'm not going to take this time this morning to describe to you what a horrible type of death. It's still perhaps one of the most cruel means of, of execution that man has ever designed. It was developed, first of all, by the Phoenicians. It was intended to take two to three days of utmost agony, which is why they broke the legs of the other, of the other men on the cross because that's what ended the, the agony quickly. When they came to Jesus, they found he was already dead. And just to be sure, they pierced his side and water and blood came out and found out that he was dead so they didn't break his bones, which was to fulfill the prophecy in Psalm 22 that none of my bones were broken. And they take him down and as we read, they put him in a tomb. Well, these bystanders are standing by and they've heard all kinds of promise. Religious people have come. When you get in the book of Acts, you find Gamaliel, one of the Pharisees, said, you know, there are others have come by and proclaimed that they were the savior of the world, that we're starting some new movement, <clears throat> and they've all died. And with them, their vision died. With them, their plans died. With them, the things that they said were going to happen died. And maybe there was in these bystanders a little hope that maybe this was the Son of God, but they've just watched, if he were, it's the Son of God die. And so another man has made promises that he couldn't fulfill. Maybe you've had people 
in your life that have made promises to you, that gave you some hope. Maybe they were pastors. Maybe they were religious leaders. Maybe it was your parents. Maybe it was someone in school gave you promises and then they didn't fulfill them or couldn't fulfill them. So here to many of these bystanders was another disappointment. But perhaps the greatest impact of what was witnessed there was the impact on the disciples. Because they weren't bystanders. They weren't the opposition. They weren't Pilate or, or, or the legal authority. These were men that had been personally called by this man called Jesus. They were men that had given up their businesses, had given up everything that they had to follow him because he laid before them a dream. He laid before them a promise. And as they walked with him, they became more and more convinced that not only was this just a great man, but this indeed was the long-promised Messiah. And that meant everything, that all the bondage that they were under. And in their minds, hopefully the bondage to Rome all the bondage and oppression that Israel had gone through for these hundreds and hundreds of years was going to be over because the Messiah had finally come. So all their hopes were on Him. And they'd left everything and followed Him and they had entered in, we talked about this last year, they entered in the beginning of this week to a triumphant entry. I mean, the city came out and celebrated and they quoted scriptures that told that this was the Messiah Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna. And they greeted him with palm leaves and they laid them at his feet as he rode in on that colt. Imagine what the disciples were feeling. This is it. Everything we've dreamed for is coming to a culmination. It's coming now. And very quickly over the course of that week, things began to change. The atmosphere in that city began to change towards them. And we talked last year that that's significant for us because the atmosphere in this nation towards the Christians is changing and it's changing rapidly. And they had to cling more closely to him than they ever had before and that's what we have to do. And now on this Friday, Thursday night, he's arrested. The unthinkable happens and I'm sure somewhere down inside they're hoping, well, he's going to do something. I mean, he's walked on water. He's raised the dead. He's done the miraculous. Surely, he's not going to let this go too far. And then most of them scatter but he's brought out to that cross. He's presented in front of them, scourged with the horrible stripes and horrible loss of blood and horrible beating. It says in Isaiah 53 that his visage, his face was marred so much that it was hardly recognizable as a human being. And he carries that wooden cross out and they lay it, they sink it down on, they nail him to it, sink it down in the socket on that hill. And he dies. He doesn't come off the cross. He doesn't prove right then who he is. Because they didn't understand what I didn't understand as a little boy, that he had to die. That he had to die. He didn't come to this earth to prove he was the Son of God. He didn't come to earth to prove he was the Messiah. God doesn't have to prove anything about himself. But he came to die. To die for your sins and for my sins. So as Friday evening closes although there were hopes in the hearts of some, although there was heartbreak and disappointment in the hearts of the disciples, although there was relief in the minds of the Pharisees and Sadducees and in Pilate's mind, it's really no li- not like either the other, uh, the criminals that were crucified on either side of him. All three of them are dead. And really, it's 
not at all unlike the end of every human being that walks on this earth. He's dead. We don't like to think about death. We try to live our life avoiding that inevitable. But the Bible says in Hebrews, it's appointed to every man wants to die. And then comes the judgment. So on Friday night, even on Sunday, Saturday morning, which was the day of, which was the Sabbath day, which was the Jewish day of rest, there's nothing different than has happened to any other man that has ever died. Full of hopes and dreams and promises, except this man's hopes and dreams and promises maybe were beyond anyone else that they'd known, but he's dead because they were all tied to him. They were all resting on him and they'd seen him do the miracles and now the miracle man didn't do the miracle of coming off that cross. He's dead. See, if he'd just been arrested, there was always the chance that he could be freed. But once you're dead, you're dead. There is no hope beyond death unless God does something. Unless God does something. Friday night, death. We all, we all, what we have in common with Jesus, what we have in common with those Pharisees, what we have in common with Pilate, what we have in common with the bystanders, what we have in common with the disciples, they're all dead. Jesus was dead, and you and I at some point will die. Now, I know you came to hear a hopeful message. We're not done yet. <laughs> all right. Because that's Friday night. That's Friday night. Let's go now into chapter 28. Saturday was the day of rest. They couldn't do anything. It was the Sabbath. And now Sunday. This is what we're all about here today. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. And his countenance was like lightning, and his clothing were white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angels answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified, but he's not here. He is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. Go quickly and tell the disciples that he's risen from the dead. Indeed, he is going before into Galilee, and you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And so they went quickly out from the tomb with fear and great joy and began to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell the disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said, Do not be afraid. Go tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And now when they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell them the disciples came at night and stole the body away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, he will appease them and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed, and as, they were, as the saying was commonly reported among the Jews even today. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Isn't that interesting? And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. You, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Early Sunday morning, the ladies go out. Instead of finding the stone in front of the tomb, it's rolled away and there's an angel sitting on it. And the angel says, he's not here. He's risen, as he said. And the other accounts, they go in and look. 
Now, we've talked about other men that have come and other leaders that have come and announced they were starting a religion or announcing that there was a cause or they knew the way to God. But they have something in common with these bystanders and Pilate and all the... They've all died also. The difference is you can go to their grave today and they're still in it. You can go to the grave of great founders of great religions of the world and if they take the, the open to the tomb, you can see their bones, their remains are still in there because they began something, but then they died. Jesus is the only one that was dead, buried, and he was raised from the dead. He's not in that grave today. He will not be in that grave tomorrow. So what does that mean to us? What does that mean? Well, let's go through these people that we've already talked about. For as opponents for the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that means that the trouble they thought was over has really just begun. For the bystanders, it gives some of them hope. But for the, for the disciples, instead of being the end, it's the beginning. You know, very often when you think things are over, is when God just begins. When you think looking at everything from a natural point of view looks like it's over and there is no hope, that's often the place where God begins. Abraham, the man through whom God established the nation of Israel, it says in Romans chapter 4, this man had no children and God promised him that through you and your wife Sarah, you're going to be the father of many nations. And not only were they both too old past childbearing age, but she had always been barren. But that doesn't stop God. Neither does a grave stop God. Because it says in Romans chapter 4 that Abraham believed God, believed in a God who can raise the dead and calls things into existence that have never existed before. And so what looked to them, the disciples, as if this were the end on Sunday morning, they now realize this is the beginning. And the beginning is Jesus' ministry on the earth has ended, but their ministry in the earth is just beginning. Because notice what he ends with. He ends with commissioning them to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. And that's the commission that's still the commission of the church today. Because you see, you and I are part of Peter, James, and John. We're part of Thaddeus and Nathaniel. We're part of all of those except for Judas. We're part of them. That What began in the day of Pentecost is still continuing today. So what did it mean to them? It meant a new beginning. It meant everything that they were called for, everything Jesus chose them for, it meant it was really starting instead of being over. All right. What does it mean for us? Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to read a little bit of Scripture today, but that's okay. It won't hurt us. Now, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter here to the church at Corinth, which was a Grecian city in the southern part of Greece. And this letter, as I've explained to you before, Paul is teaching them, correcting some teachings and doctrines and practices that they had. 
So he's correcting them. First of all, he starts out by saying, you know, you think you're so spiritual because the gifts of the Spirit flow so freely through you and God uses you so mightily, but you're just carnal. You're really like babies because there's envy, jealousy, and strife among you. And he talks about their communion and the, the looseness with which they practiced, celebrated the Lord's table together. Teaches them some things about the gifts of the Spirit and basically says, if what you're doing isn't motivated by the love of God, then in God's eyes it counts as nothing. And then he gives them some practical inspiration. And now in chapter 15, he's talking about a different issue because some of them had been taught and there were teachings out there that the resurrection either had already happened or that there really was no such thing as a resurrection. I mean, because understand, these are Greeks. Greeks in those days were the people through whom philosophy had come forth. They were basically intelligent people. They were people very much like many of our people are today, and especially in New England. We've lived in other parts of the country, but this is very an area where education and, and intelligence is, is generally considered in high esteem. And so, so, and this was what Greece was like. They were very analytical, they were very philosophical, they were very intellectual. This is why Paul starts this letter by talking about, you know, God chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Aren't you God, aren't you God, God can choose foolish things to confound the wise? The things that are not to, 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 to confound the things that are. He was basically saying what, what, is, what, in, what in man's eyes is wise and knowledgeable in God's eyes is foolishness. The wisdom of man does not bring him closer to God. It's through the foolishness of the word preached that brings us closer to God. It was through the foolishness of the cross. I mean, absolutely foolish for God to take his son and have him arrested, nailed to a cross and die for things he didn't do wrong. In fact, it's so foolish, the Bible says, it fooled even Satan. Because it said if Satan and the rulers of the world had understand what was going on, he never would have crucified the Lord of glory. God caught him in a trap. Because God thinks in terms of greatness and love, and Satan thinks in terms of destruction and deceit. He could not think in the same terms God could think of. So he couldn't imagine what God was doing. And as a result, we'll see in a moment, he caught him in a trap. So the Corinthians is written in the end of it, Paul is addressing this issue of the resurrection and what its significance is, and this is why we're looking at it today. So Paul's talking about, in the beginning, he's going to talk about the resurrection, the gospel, excuse me. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand. So he's talking about the gospel. By which you were saved, by the gospel we're saved. If you were hold fast to that word with which I preached, unless you believed in vain. For, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received from, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He rose again on the third day, according to the Scriptures, that He was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, and by the twelve that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. So after he was raised from the dead, he was seen not only by his disciples, but over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to present, but some have fallen asleep. That means passed away. After that, he was seen by James, the Lord's brother, and then by all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of time. Because Paul was not walking with the disciples when Jesus was raised from the dead. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And His grace towards me was not in vain, for I have labored more abundantly than they all. 
Yet not I, but the grace of God which is in me. Therefore, whether it is I or they, so we preach and so you believed. So the resurrection is an essential part of the gospel. The gospel is Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, and he was raised from the dead. So what does this mean to us? Well, let's look at the first thing it means. We're going to look at three things this morning. Let's go to verse 12. Now, if Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And so what he's saying here, some were saying that there is no such thing as the resurrection of the dead, and Paul is saying, well, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ wasn't raised from the dead. And now he's going to say, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, this is what that would mean to us. So this is our first insight into what the resurrection of Christ 2,000 years ago means to us today. If Christ is not written, verse 14, verse 14, is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith also is empty. Yes, and if we're, and we're found as false witnesses of God because we've testified of God that He raised up Christ whom He did not raise up if in fact the dead do not raise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ has not risen. If Christ has not risen, your faith is futile, empty, of no effect. And look at this. And you're still in your sins. So it's not enough that Christ died for our sins. It's not enough that He was buried for our sins. Paul's saying that if He died and was buried with our sins and was not raised from the dead, then we're all still in our sins. Why? Why is that so? Because here's what the Bible teaches Jesus did for us, and it's a very simplistic method, way I can explain it. God at the appropriate time took Jesus, His Son, who had walked on this earth for 33, around 33 years. And the Bible tells us in those 33 years He never sinned. He's the only man that's walked on this earth, worn flesh, and never sinned. And yet He was tempted, it says, in all ways as we are, without sin. He had every temptation you've ever been tempted with. And yet He did not give in to it, ever. And if he ever gave into it once, then this whole plan was gone. And we'll see why in a minute. And so at the end of his appointed time, when he knew it was time, that's why he's agonizing in the Garden of Gethsemane on Thursday night. He's not agonizing because of the pain of the cross. He's agonizing because he understands what's going to happen is when he gets on that cross, God's going to take the sin of the world and put all the sin of the world on him. Think of the very worst day you've ever had, the very worst thing you've ever done, and the, how guilty you may have felt, the worst guilt you've ever felt. Imagining taking that guilt and multiplying it by everybody that's ever lived. Every sin that's ever been committed and put that on him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin. God didn't just end individual. He made him to be sin. He made him to be sin. Why? Because what God wanted, the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 and a number of other places, God's ultimate goal was to redeem man back to where he had him in the, the way he, for which he made him in the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. God made man to be his and to, so that they could have each other. The, 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 the symbol that's used in the New Testament is sons and daughters. 
He made him to be... So it says in, in Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined or planned ahead us to the adoption as sons through Christ Jesus. So God's plan before the foundation of the world to win us back was that we would come to the place that we could be adopted into his family as sons and daughters the way the original man, first man and woman, were his also. The problem was Genesis 3, as Lafayette talked about last week, one man listened to the wrong voice and disobeyed God. And when he disobeyed God, it opened the door and sin came into the world. And sin doesn't just come into the world's atmosphere. Sin entered the man and his nature. And sin creates an infinite separation from God because God is absolutely holy. And so God could not just say, I love you, I want you to be my son and daughter, because the issue that stood between you and me, the issue that stood between every man and God that wanted him to himself was our sin, a rebellion against God. And the root of all that rebellion is selfishness, self. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to have the ultimate decision of whether I'm going to obey God or not. I'm going to take my life into my hands. That's the root of all sin and that's the root that God had to root out. And so in order to have man his again, in order to have us to be sons and daughters of the living God in a union with Him, in a relationship with Him just like you are with your children one with them, they have your flesh, they have your blood the sin had to be dealt with and the, the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin so something had to die, in the Old Testament God used animals, the shedding of their blood as a type, as a temporary thing so that he could relate to man but no, he could never be their father he could never be, they could never be his children they couldn't be one with him but that allowed him, that appeased the sin it covered it over so that God could have dealings with them but his ultimate plan was to be carried out on that cross on that Friday. And so at the appropriate time on that cross, God took sin itself, all the sin of man, and laid that on His Son. And then God poured His anger. Because we forget, we know God's grace, but we forget that God is a righteous God. God is angry at unrighteousness. We're going to see a scripture that talks about that in a few minutes. So God had to deal with this, this anger. He had, to deal with, he's didn't, he had to deal with the judgment, the penalty for sin. See, grace does not mean God just did what we often do as parents and say, well, you know what, I'm going to be gracious today. I just kind of looked the other way as if I didn't see that. Or I'm going to give them another chance and say, Johnny, if you do it again, having said this 14 times, then you're going to get a spanking. Thinking that's grace. If God did that, He would cease to be righteous and then we're all in trouble. So how does a righteous God who cannot tolerate any unrighteousness embrace as His own people like you and me who are anything but righteous on our own? Who are proud, jealous, envious, selfish, self-centered on our best day. The Bible says that all of us, our best deeds are still like filthy rags compared to God's holiness. 
and righteousness. So God pours his anger, his judgment for your sin and my sin out on that cross. And he died in sin. He was taken down and buried in sin. And the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about what happened after that. We have some clues. There's some references in Psalm 22 about some of the struggle that went on in hell. There's a reference to in, in Ephesians talks about, you know, having ascended, he first descended into hell. In Colossians, it talks about he made a public show of the a triumph over the, the principalities and powers, demons in the lower part of the earth, triumphing over them. So the references to a struggle that went on in hell. And I believe what went on down in hell is Satan was celebrating. I finally got him. If you go back and study back in Isaiah, you'll see that he was after the Son of God from the very beginning. He was jealous of the Son of God that sat at the right hand of the Father. Because he said, I want to make myself like the Most High. He didn't say, I want to take God's place. I want to be like the Son of God. He thought that was his position. So he's been after him ever since. And now he has him in hell. And he has him legally because he died in sin. He died in sin. But when the price was fully paid, when the price was fully paid, when the price was fully paid, the Spirit of God came down in there and took a man in the place of death and made him alive. Now what I'm about to say to you isn't in the Scriptures, so I'm not telling you it's the Gospel, but I just got to think something like this happened. I've got to believe that Satan jumped up and said, No, this can't happen here. I have you here legally. You died with sin and I have you here legally. That sin gave me a hold on you. But he forgot a technicality. You see, none of the sin that brought him there was his. So listen carefully. What, had, what he had to do was Jesus was raised from the dead. He left there and he left your sin there. Now let's look at death from that point of view. Told you I'd show you back up again. He died with our sins, no different than anybody else had ever died. He was buried dead, no different than any else had ever been buried. But he was raised back again to a newness of life. So Paul's telling us here that his resurrection validates and proves the gospel. They wanted him to come off the cross. They wagged their heads and said, if you're the son of God, then come off the cross. But that's exactly what the devil wanted him to do. The devil wanted him to come off the cross before the price was paid. But Jesus, aren't you glad he went all the way through to the fullness of it? But now he come, he's come alive, seen by over 500 people over a period of 40 days. It validates the gospel. Paul says, if he's died but not raised again, that we're still in our sins. My preaching is in vain. What makes this gospel real, what makes this gospel the power of God, is he was raised, a man that was dead was raised from the dead. A man that was dead in our sins was raised from the dead and walked on this earth, and he's coming back again. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Oh, it's going to get better. You ready? Oh, yeah. 
Let's go over to, we're in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's go over to um, verse 55. See, death is the ultimate enemy of every man. God did not create man to die. God doesn't create things originally to be temporary. God did not create man to die. Death came in when sin came in. Because in in Genesis chapter 2, God said, if you eat of this tree, which I'm telling you not to eat of, if you disobey me, if you sin, in dying you will die. And of course the man ate of this fruit and died. That was death, spiritual death, means separation from God, the source of life. Death is our enemy. We do everything we can to not die. That's why we spend billions of dollars in the health industry on medicine and on doctors and on tests and on all this stuff. Why? And they're working with us. They're not our enemies. Why? So that we're not going to die. But guess what? With all their equipment, with all their medicine, with all they can do for you, unless Jesus comes back, the good news I have for you today is you are going to die and I am too. And the sooner we face it and can, can govern our lives by that, the better off we'll be. In fact, I've heard it said, you're really not prepared to live until you're prepared to die. Now, we don't need to want to think about it all the time, and I understand that, but we need to face the reality. This life is not everything. Don't try to cling to it and hold on to it so desperately, because if you're in Christ, this is the closest thing to hell you're ever going to know. And it's temporary. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, though this outer man's perishing, and whether... You may be in the best shape of your life, but it's still perishing because your body starts dying the moment you're born because it starts the aging process. And if I look back at pictures, we had a relative come a couple of weeks ago and look back at some old pictures and I discovered my hair has changed color over the last few years and there's not quite as much of it as when I first, we first came here, what, 25 years ago? You know, I've got... <laughs> the, was it Marianne Brown used to say, everything that used to be north went south. <laughs> you start growing hair where you don't want to grow it and you lose hair where you wanted to have it. I mean, it's a process of decay. But the good news is that's just your temporary house. The inner man, Paul says, gets renewed day by day. It's interesting, the Israelites, when God first called them, it says in Romans, Hebrews 11, that they lived in tents because they were looking for a city whose builder and maker and God, whose foundation was in God. And the, the symbol that they use is that this life is like living in a tent. A tent has no foundation. Why? It's not permanent. It can be moved easily. And your life is not permanent. It's like a tent. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about it as this tent. We're going to put off this tent. We're going to put off this and put on a new body. We're going to see that in a minute. So this is just temporary. But death... We fear it because it's unknown. We fear it. And the Bible talks about there's a sting to death. We'll see that in a minute. I quoted to you earlier from Hebrews. It says, It's appointed to every man to die once. 
and then comes judgment. That's where the sting is. Somewhere inside of us, we know when this is over, I'm going to have to stand before somebody and give an account for my life. We're living in a world that's trying to erase God. Why do we want to get rid of God? Why do they want to get rid of God? Not because they don't like God, because if there's a God out there, then somewhere down the road, I'm going to have to stand and give an account for how I've lived my life, and I don't want to be accountable to anybody. I'm my own master. I'm my own king. I'm the master of my own ship. Yeah. And so we've got to somehow give, get rid of God. Nietzsche said a hundred and some years ago, God is dead. Well, I've got news for you. Nietzsche's dead. But God's very much alive. All right. Let's go to, over to verse... Let's go over to verse um, 55. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades or hell, where is your victory? For the sting of death is sin... And the strength of sin is the law. So death has a sting to it, a pain to it. That's why we recoil from it. And the, st- the sting of that death is sin, knowing we're not right, knowing we haven't lived a life that's perfect before God. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brethren, beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. So death has a sting to it. It's the loss of what we know. It's the the cherished of life. It's the fear of judgment. But the resurrection, he says, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? So in the resurrection that we just described, where Christ comes alive and comes out of that, he's defeated death. In fact, go quickly over to Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 14, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed does he not give aid to angels, but he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had to become like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So first of all, the resurrection validates the gospel. Secondly, it defeats the power of death. That doesn't mean your body won't die, but death has no victory over you. I'm going to show you what death is like to a Christian. I'm free. Everything that held me back, everything that got tired, everything that tempted me to do what I shouldn't do, eat what I shouldn't eat, not do what I should do, everything that ever gave me trouble is in that coat in my flesh and I just put it off and I'm free to a Christian that's there's no, see there was no sting in that I wasn't exposing anything by taking that off that I was able to hide from God because everything that was underneath that had already been taken care of the price had been paid so I could now stand before God just like that first Adam did it says they stand before God and they were naked and were not ashamed there was nothing hidden I can stand before God, just as he said in Ephesians 1, holy and without blame. Not because I'm holy and without blame, because the part of me that was 
unholy and with blame, I just set aside. It's down in the grave. It's six feet under. It's going to rot away. It's going to return to the dust from which it originally came. But that's not me. Now, for purposes of the next service, I've got to put, me, put it back on again. <laughs> I don't want to. I feel a lot freer without it and a lot cooler, but I've got to put it back on again to, to finish this message. So Paul is saying here, as we go back into 1 Corinthians 15, that his resurrection, because it defeated the power of death, takes the sting out of death. So we don't have to fear death. Because he's conquered death. He's overcome death. That's the second significance of the resurrection. The third significance. Let's go back to verse 20 in 1 Corinthians 15. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Because what he's saying here is he has raised from the dead. Let's talk about what that means. For since by, for since by man came death... And by man also came the resurrection by the dead. That's by Christ. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. For each one in his own order. Christ is the first fruits. After that, uh, uh, after that, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end. Let's go down to verse 29. Otherwise, what will, what will they do who are, who are baptized into the dead? If the dead do not rise at all. Why are, they, why, are we not, why are we baptized into the dead? Why do we stand in jeopardy every year? Paul is talking, why, do I, why have I gone through what I've gone through if the dead aren't raised? I affirm by the boasting in you that I have in Christ our Lord, I die daily, but if in the manner of men I fought the beast at Ephesus, in other words, if I've done this out of just natural purposes, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not ra- ra- raise, let us eat, drink, and tomorrow we die. So let's just enjoy life. I mean, if, if there's nothing after this life then we're the f- most foolish of all people, Paul is saying. Why don't we just go out and have fun like the rest of the world does if there is no resurrection from the dead? But Paul's governed his life. He's paid the prices that he's paid because he knows there's a resurrection from the dead. That is his hope. Because what we're talking about now is the third significance of the resurrection. It gives us a blessed hope for the future. Verse 35, but someone might say, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive until it dies. And what you sow, do you not sow the body that it may be, but shall not be mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain? But God gives it a body as he pleases to each seed of its own body. So he's talking about the the, the covering of a seed. All flesh is not the same flesh, verse 39. But there's one kind of flesh of men, another kind of flesh of animals, another kind of fish, another of birds. There are also celestial, heavenly bodies, and earthly bodies. But the glory of the the heavenly body is one, and the glory of the earthly body is another. There's one glory of the sun, there's another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, and one star differs from another in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, which means it's decaying, it's dying. But it's raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It gets sick. It dies. Whatever happens. It gets old. It gets wrinkled. It gives out. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. 
It's sown a natural human body, but it's raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body, and so it is written, written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last man, that's Christ, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterwards the spirit. The first man was of or out of the earth, that was Adam. He was made of dust, that's why your body goes back to the dust. The second man is of the Lord, and he's from heaven. And, the, and as the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. That's our bodies. As was the heavenly man, that's Christ, so also are those that are made of heaven. That's our heavenly body. For as we were born, born the image of the man of dust, so we shall also bear the image of the heavenly one. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You can't take your body to heaven. So don't get too attached to it. I've heard it referred to as your earth suit. You are a spirit being. And if you're in Christ, God's kingdom, God's nature is in you because you're His child on the inside, but that body's the same body you had when you were born. Oh, it's bigger, heavier, changed a lot, but it's still an earthly suit. And because heaven is an eternal place, you cannot take this earthly body there. So don't get attached to it. Take care of it so that it'll finish a course with you and you don't have to drag it around, but don't get too attached to it. Because you're going to have to leave it here whichever way you go. It's staying here. And a hundred years from now, it's going to be dirt. It's going to decay. But that's not you. That's not who you are. That's why Paul says, although this outward man is decaying, there's an inner man inside of me that's getting stronger and more full of life every day. So this outward man, we got to let go of it in order to get a new body by which we can enter into heaven It's an eternal body. And that's what Jesus came in those 40 days to display. Kind of the prototype. You know, they design a new car. They'll get prototypes out there. And they'll show you pictures of it. Test runs. They may even have some that are out on the streets. Jesus was walking around. That's why he walked through walls. That's why at one point he sits with them and they said, you know, they were afraid he was a spirit. He says, give me something to eat. So he took a bit of bread and he took a bit of fish and he ate it. And I'm sure they were watching to see it go down. What's going to happen? It's going to fall through to the ground? I mean, they don't know. They never experienced this before. They have to have had those questions. Because he said, see? Spirits can't eat food. So his body was more real than theirs because walls didn't stop him. Walls are of the substance of this earth. They're made of stone, brick, whatever, wood. And his body was more real than those brick stones than those stones in mortar his body was more real and the more the less real has to give way to the more real so walls didn't stop him time didn't stop him and that's the same body you're going to get so whatever you're dealing with today if you're fighting sickness and disease and you're standing for healing praise God I believe with you you're going to receive it but even if you don't There's coming a day when you put this thing off and what you put on 
can't be sick, can't be weak, never gets tired. And you can eat all you want. Not yet. All right, we got to bring this to a close. Verse 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, that means die here, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. We shall all be changed. Go with me to 1 Thessalonians 4. This is our blessed hope. 1 Thessalonians 4. Verse 13. But I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, who have died before us, lest lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who are asleep in Christ. And this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, and that may be us, will by no means precede or go before those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and the voice of an archangel, and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always or forever be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Chapter 5. But concerning the times and the season, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourself know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. They're not gonna, you're not going to know ahead of time. I don't care who's on television talking about blood moons and, you know, this moons. The Word of God says even Jesus doesn't know. Verse 3, For when they say peace and safety and sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should not overtake you as a thief. But you are sons of the light and sons of the day, and you are not of the night or of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do. This is a time, church, to be awake. Not afraid. Not looking at the news and saying, my goodness, what's ISIS doing today? And what's go plague is out there? And what's Boko Haram? What are all these? What's Al-Qaeda doing? This is a time for us to be awake. This is our hour. This is why we're here. Look up for He's coming again. We need to get about what we're here to do. And I believe He's coming soon. Verse 7, For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should, not li- we should live together with Him. Therefore, comfort one another and edify one another, just as you also were doing. So the resurrection means to us, first of all, it validates the gospel. It proves that it's the truth. Among all the religions of the world, this is the one where the founder was died, died and was raised again by the power of God. Number two, it means he's defeated the power of death over you. There's no sting of death to those who are in Christ. Number three, it gives us a blessed hope that he's coming back again, that the same resurrection he experienced, we're going to experience. You're already our 
the kingdom of God is in you. But you're going to get a new body, whether it's we're here when he comes back or this body's put in the dust and he brings it back alive with that new body. That is the great hope that Paul kept looking for. That is the hope that when he got him to through everything he went through. And that is the hope that we're to keep our eyes on. But I have to add with, end with one last scripture. It's over in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. That's for those who are in Christ. Verse 4. We ourselves boast of you among the children of God for your patience with, and faith in all persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. So he's talking about when he comes back with his mighty angels. He's coming back, verse 8, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in the saints and to be admired among those who believe because of our testimony among you was believed. Therefore, we always pray for you that our Lord God would count you worthy of his calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. Today we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. To a Christian, our hope, our blessed hope. To a Christian... The proof that death is not to be feared. That death is actually to be looked forward to. Life is an assignment from God. And when that assignment's over, we want to leave here and go to our reward. And the resurrection validates, proves, demonstrates with something nobody else could ever do that this gospel is the truth. It is God. It is the way. Jesus said, I am the way the truth in life. No one comes to the Father unless they come through me. We ended with a scripture that says he, when he comes back, he's not just coming for the church. He's not just coming for those who believe in him and have given, invited him into their life. But he's going to come eventually with vengeance. There's a day of judgment. And in that day of judgment, everything that you've ever done gets displayed before God. And judgment is handed out. To a Christian, when we stand before God for judgment, he sees Christ because we're in him. To someone that has not received Christ, we stand alone before him, before God's holy righteousness. God is a God of justice. And the good news is, while you're still in this body, you get to choose which one of those judgments you're going to face. You choose it. God doesn't look down and say, you know, this one I'm going to judge by their own righteousness, this one I'm going to judge in Christ. No, Jesus is offered to everybody. It's, the Bible says it's not the will of God that any perish, but that all would come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not just talking about what church you belong to. We're not just talking about religion you're part of. That's man's idea, and those religions, those churches... In a hundred years, this building won't be here. I don't know what will be here. But in a hundred years, I won't be here either. But I still be. I will exist, just not in this body. 
You get to choose where you're going to spend eternity. But once you breathe your last breath, it's too late. So it's not about where you go to church. Because when you stand before God, He's not going to say, did you go to Faith Christian Center? Because if you did, boy, you made the right choice. <clears throat> we believe you made a good choice, but that's not what gets you into heaven. It's not what church you belong to. Religions are going to stay here. Church buildings are going to stay here. Man's philosophies and ideas are going to stay here. The only thing that's going to be raised from the dead are the children of the living God. And you get to choose today. You say, well, what about tomorrow? I don't know that we have tomorrow. What we just read about could happen this afternoon. Jesus could come back. Wouldn't it be wonderful if He came back on Resurrection Day? Jesus could just come back. He could come back right now. We need to be expecting that. And for those that are in Christ that know they're right, that's a good thing to look forward to. But to those that are not, it's a very uncomfortable thing because He is a holy God.